0: You are listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and on this week's lesson, we'd like to ask the question, where did we lose Adam? Where did we lose Adam? This is the fourth episode in our new series, The Biblical Origin of Humanity. We are working through uh, Dr. Terry Mortensen's book, And it is called Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. And in looking at this, we've so far uh, gave a little bit of an overview in the first lesson. Uh, We asked, is Adam the real deal? And uh, we gave a little bit of an overview about what this series might be like. And then in uh, the second lesson, we dealt with Adam according to the Old Testament. Adam according to the Old Testament. Did the Old Testament writers uh, have something to say about the historicity of Adam? Did they believe in a historical Adam? Or did they believe in an allegorical Adam? And I think um, you can pretty clearly surmise from what we laid out that they believed in a historical Adam. Well, then, uh, of course, the natural thing is to to wonder, did that teaching carry over to the New Testament? And then from the New Testament to the church, uh, did the early church fathers, for instance, um, believe in a historical Adam? Did they put that much weight and that much gravity behind the text? And I believe uh, you would agree with me that we saw that indeed they did. Even in some cases where there were um, certainly alternative theories. I mean, even in Paul's day, there was already um, others Um, And we mentioned Philo uh, of Alexandria as one example um, of those who were approaching Adam in a different way. So, um, it is not correct to say that uh, Paul took the position that he did on Adam simply out of cultural pressures um, or because he had to. There were certainly other options that um, Paul no doubt would have been aware of, and yet he chose to record Adam uh, in light of history. He treated Adam the same way that Jesus Christ treated Adam, and I think that is very, very important. So that is uh, what we've done so far. Now, this week we are uh, moving a little bit further, and uh, we are dealing with what is chapter four of the book, And and I'm titling this lesson, Where Did We Lose Adam?, where did we lose Adam? And what we're kind of going uh, to do here um, is go through this chapter, and this chapter is almost a summation of the evidence that we've discussed thus far. It approaches it a little bit differently, uh, and, and it's written by a completely different author, and we're going to kind of uh, see somebody else's take on this here, um, and notice uh, some of the cultural trends uh, that um, had to do with our loss of Adam uh, as a church. Um, we're also going to uh, look at uh, some various other evidences. Um, in the Old and New Testaments for Adam's historicity and some other supporting evidence as well. So um, this is going to be uh, important. You are going to hear a, a few things that you might have heard already, and we'll. Uh, I, I tried to when I was putting this uh, the material for this week together. I tried to go ahead and parse out anything that we had already uh, discussed. This was a really good chapter. Some of the information was repeat. Okay, so we're we're not going to go through. Uh, go through that. I tried to parse out, again, as much of that as I could and give you all new information for this week. So where did we lose Adam? That is the question that we must answer today. Now this chapter, which again is chapter four, was written by Dr. Eugene H. Merrill. Dr. Eugene H. Merrill. He retired in 2013 from the Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, There he was the professor of Old Testament for about 38 years. So uh, that's awesome. Uh, What a testimony uh, to have uh, taught Old Testament for 38 years of your life. Uh, That's a wonderful testimony. He uh, currently lectures uh, home and abroad in the areas of Hebrew and Semitic languages, Uh, Biblical backgrounds, Old Testament theology, and um, at the time of the writing here uh, is involved, or was involved, I should say, uh, in an archaeological excavation at uh, Kirbet al makatir a possible site of the biblical city of Ai. So this guy has definitely um, been around the block, so to say. He's got something to say. He's got a good opinion, I believe, on on the things of God, and uh, he knows a little bit about Adam. And so we're going to see what we can learn from him this week. Now, the author begins with a very personal illustration as he begins laying out this chapter, and uh, to sum it up, he's talking about this time when he was asked to... um, Participate in an investigation, a doctrinal investigation of an evangelical professor. In other words, there was a university, an evangelical university, who uh, had a professor who appeared to be espousing some beliefs that were contrary to the statement that was signed. And so, when that happens, it's it's very important, of course, that if a school uh, if a university I- indeed has a certain philosophy, a certain understanding of the Bible, and their teachers are teaching something opposite from that, uh, you are going to have a, a big problem. Unfortunately, in this particular case, they did find out that the professor um, was uh, guilty for all intents and purposes of espousing this different uh, belief, which is very unfortunate, however, not so unexpected. And this uh, person was found to um, espouse some different beliefs about Genesis, and they admitted that, and the proper action was taken. And so, it's unfortunate, uh, it's a it's a terrible circumstance, but, but Dr. Merrill goes through and kind of explains what happened here, and he's like, look, um... You know, if we can't trust Genesis to be historical, where do we draw the line? And this is a question that I find myself asking those who tell me that they don't believe in um, a literal Adam. And to some extent, you, you, you deal with this. Um, even with those who accepted old Earth interpretation of Genesis, but it's more so with those who, who just treat Genesis as um, as a historical. Uh, that's the bottom line. There are some people who just treat Genesis as a complete allegory, a complete symbolism, as we've seen already. That that uh, we we've, we've discussed some of the writings of those who do. And. The theological trouble that you get into when you start moving in that direction is very um, dangerous territory, and um, the, the reasoning that Dr. Merrill gives here is one of the reasons why I believe that's the case, and uh, essentially he asks this, at what point, if Genesis is not treated as historical, at what point do we draw the line? Do we draw it with a resurrection? Do we draw it with a virgin birth? Do we draw it with Christ's miracles? Where do we draw it? I was reading uh, a website the other day, and I was looking at the comments section, and I was encouraged to see a very, very fruitful discussion, actually, going on in the comments section, and it was pretty standard fare. Um, It was basically between an evangelical recent creationist and a a theistic evolutionist, and it was a very respectful conversation. There was no ill will on, on either side. Everybody was just, you know, trying to make sense of things but I couldn't just glaze over something I saw from the theistic evolutionist. And I don't have the quote in front of me, um, partly on on purpose, because to give it enough context to read the actual quote would would be difficult. I'd have to read a lot more than I have time for. But the, the gist of it is, and I'm not making this up, unfortunately, the theistic evolutionist said, yes, I realize that Jesus said, from the beginning, God made them male and female. I believe this person essentially said, I'm not quoting exact, but this is what they said, essentially. I believe that Jesus was a young earth creationist, but because of what science tells me today, I know he was wrong. This man claims to be a Christian. Was talking in that same thread about some experiences in his church that just had a, a time of revival and prayer, and um, talked like a Christian. Sounded, I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian, but said that we know Jesus was wrong. Jesus did not have knowledge of the age of the earth. At least he did not have the the proper knowledge. And this concerns me because the proof text was essentially, um, he was trying to explain how Christ in his earthly body did not have the same knowledge as the Father. And, you know, And I haven't done some kind of detailed study into this, um, but you know, I know that if we look at the text, we can see some obvious things going on. I mean, Jesus does not know, for instance, um, at least according to a, a face value reading of the text, Jesus does not know at what time he is coming back to get his bride but the father knows and perhaps Jesus knows now and he didn't know then you know i, I don't know i haven't worked all of that out so don't don't crucify me for not having my theology worked out there um, but there's one thing that i do know i do know that john says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and it says that um, without him there was not anything made that was made and, of course, we know that the Word became flesh, right? And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. And, I'm, of course, I'm not quoting that exactly. I'm just picking and choosing from that from that section um, to, to make my point. The, the point is Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus is fully aware of the creation. He was there, absolutely, 100%. Now, this is not something that Jesus did not know. So... The theological implications and the natural outworking of this is that at some point, we just have to say that Jesus either did not know um, something that he did. This just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's not a high view of Christ. It's not a high view of Scripture. Um, uh, It's not a high view of anything except for science. So, um, this is very, very dangerous. Uh, The same thing was said, of course, last week we discussed a little bit, the Romans 5 chapter, right? Remember Romans 5, 12. um, When Paul is dealing with the entrance of sin into the world, and then death by sin, of course, then death passed uh, to all men. And uh, this theistic evolutionist willingly admitted that Paul is absolutely espousing the belief of a historical Adam there. Uh, but in almost his exact words, uh, he made it in a rhetorical question kind of way. He repeated it back: "Is Paul saying that that is a historical? Uh, that, that, that there is a historical Adam? Yes. Was Paul right? No, because physical science and evidence today has proved him wrong. Now I'm not reading anything into this, but you cannot possibly listen to what I've just said." and not understand that there are those who are placing science on the same level, if not at a greater level than history, than the history of the Bible, than known, eyewitness recorded, factual history. Well, this is a problem. This is a problem. And so, you know, as I mentioned, one of the questions that I ask is, at what point, you know, on what basis, if we can't accept that... The first chapters of Genesis were literal and that they actually happened on the basis of science. Um, According to what standard do we accept a resurrection or the virgin birth, according to science? You know, uh, why? Uh, That seems just wildly inconsistent to me. You say, well, we have good evidence for those things. Okay, well, I believe we have good evidence for Genesis 1 through 11 as well. You're just not looking at the world through the right lens. We look at the world through the biblical lens and accept what it says at face value as truth using a consistent grammatical historic, uh, historical hermeneutic, we can arrive at the truth. And so that's what we're trying to get across. And if you're listening to this, if you're a theistic evolutionist, um, if you're an old earth creationist, just, you know, listen, I- I'm not bashing you. It is not my job to bash you. Um, if you go back and listen to the first episodes of this uh, entire podcast, I made clear that my position is to simply give a a, a cohesive model of creation, a cohesive theory of creation. Um, and I'm sorry, I stumbled a little there. I'm just trying to get the wording right. Um, I, I'm not aiming to simply put down the views of others whenever I get behind this microphone. Okay. That's, that's not, that's not my goal. My goal here is to, to build a positive case for recent creationism using books and using other resources and other tools. Um, and things that I have learned, we're trying to build a positive case. I am very passionate about what I call the new creationism, which is just a simple way of putting it, uh, that rather than spend the most of my time talking about the reason why other ways don't work, I just choose by my own choice to spend more time talking about, um, how the creation model does work in a more positive sense. So that's just my particular role, um, my particular mission. Um, but implicit in doing that, especially going through this book, you know there there are times that we're going to just have to address the fact that there are those with an alternative view of Genesis that leads down a very ugly path and it's unfortunate, but you know we've had to address that a little bit this morning because it, it's just so relevant I couldn't let that go um it, It's been bothering me ever since I read it, and if we're going to live fulfilled lives if we're going to be obedient to Christ if we are going to be Christians who accept God and who who love God with our whole heart with our whole soul with our with our mind with our strength with everything that was is within us i think that we're going to have to establish a certain degree of trust in his word in order to get there i don't think we will ever really begin to live the abundant life that Christ wants for us until we begin to wholly submit and wholly trust in his word. I'm going to link you to a video that I watched. It was recorded at the Is Genesis History um, um, conference, and it's a video of Dr. Kurt Wise. It's it's 20 minutes long, and it's his testimony about becoming a creationist. Um, After reading what I read the other day, I'm not going to lie, I needed some encouragement, and, and this was it. I mean, God, God sent me this video. I, I fully believe that, and actually, I've seen it before, uh, because I, I own their conference video, um, but it just it, it didn't affect me in the same way as it did after reading that other thing, and I, I saw it again yesterday. Somebody had posted it on YouTube, and it actually just came up, uh, rather than the other place where I bought it, and so I watched it on YouTube, this video, and oh man, It's inspiring. It's really inspiring to see his story. I um, won't spoil the fun. I won't tell you about it here. But if you, want, if you want to really see the kind of resolve that I'm talking about, then you need to go watch that video. We're talking about probably, and, and some of you may not have know may not know him. Uh, you probably endorse some of the creation models he has helped to come up with. He's very um, instrumental in the field of barominology. Came up um, it, part of the party that came up with the catastrophic plate tectonics model, and he's very influential. Probably, probably the most well educated, um, and. Uh, you know, m- one of the most well-respected creation scientists there is. And, I, you know, I'll just, I'll give you the punchline. He's essentially quoted as, as saying to his college professors that even if all of the evidence in the entire universe turned against creationism, he would still be a creationist because that's what God's Word seems to to say, and I, I, you know, I just completely agree with him, and you need to go watch that video, um, the, I mean, there are tears, it's all inspiring, I'm not going to lie, it's really all inspiring to see somebody who's been so passionate about science, but also was so passionate about God, and almost, um, coming to the, point where, where he decided he was going to have to give up one or the other and chose God. Uh, and just weeks later, God gave him back science. Uh, let me just tell you, it's an incredible story. I encourage you to go watch it. It will encourage you. Um, and now that we have a little bit more encouragement under our belt, let's go ahead and move on with what we were talking about. So where do we draw the line? Can we accept a resurrection, a virgin birth, Christ miracles, etc.? Consistently, if we do not accept Genesis 1 through 11. Now, what's interesting is we saw the first interrogation in the Bible uh, on the part of God when Adam and Eve messed up in the garden. It's expressed by a single Hebrew word which essentially asks this question, and you'll remember, where are you? Where are you? Where art thou, Adam, right? That's what God is asking Adam. Did Adam not know where God was? Of course he knew where he was, right? Of course he knew that. He was um, simply opening up to Adam the fact that he knew what was wrong. He knew what he did. He knew that he had sinned. And Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves from God, and they just could not do it. And so that's where this stems from. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? That's what we want to know. Where did Adam go, right? Where did we lose Adam? Now, the author comments. He says, The narratives of Genesis 1-11 through on their very surface are clear and plain. The object is to explain in the simplest way possible for any reader to understand, regardless of race or culture or education level, how the human condition came to be and what measures God will take to ameliorate and at last overcome The awesome separation between God and his image that man's own sin has engendered. So, this is um, what a plain reading indicates. And... I agree. And by the way, I've had many who fall on the uh, progressive creationism side, uh, many who fall on different areas of the old earth interpretation, to tell me that they agree with this, that a straightforward reading does seem to indicate uh, that the days of Genesis, for instance, are literal, that if you look at the genealogies, you've got uh, a little over 6,000 years. Um, most everybody is willing to admit, if they're consistent, most everybody is willing to admit that at face value, that's what the text says, But if you dig into it deeper and start to um, look at things that you don't necessarily have to accept the text that way, um, that would be their argument. And what I want to argue as a recent creationist is that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can take a look at... Uh, Genesis at face value, as would meant to be understand by the widest um, range of, of individuals, again, regardless of race, culture, or education level. But if we start with that assumption, when we do science, we can see if it works or if it doesn't. And lo and behold, it works in many areas. Now, not in all areas. I mean, I'm willing to admit there's difficulties, all right? There's difficulties with our model. There's also difficulties with the evolution uh, model. So um, there's difficulties on both ends. The question is, which assumptions do you believe are true? Do you believe that the present is the key to the past, or do you believe that the past is the key to the present? Do you believe that the Bible got it right in its history as God recorded it, or do you believe that man got it Um, right, and that God is the one who is wrong, and, and, you know, here's the thing, too, you know, it's not just a matter of how long we make the days, and this is actually something that Kurt Wise points out in his video. You've got an astounding amount of problems, okay, with uh, reconciling old earth texts, um, or an old earth view, rather, excuse me, of the text, um, than with a a straightforward literal meaning. I mean, you've got, you've got things that are just out of order. And so you, you then have to start talking in terms of those days meshing together and just, I mean, there are problems after problems after problems, um, with leaving this interpretation of the text. Many of them can be reconciled by, you know, doing this, that, or the other with scripture, but many of them cannot, all right? Many of them cannot, um, And none of them, I would argue, can be reconciled a hundred percent. All right. So the author continues, only with the advent of the so-called enlightenment of the 17th century and its continuing influence to the present day have the stories been dismissed as ideologies or myths. And so what are some of the cultural uh, trends that might have contributed to that. Well, well, there's a few things. All right, this new understanding could be due to, number one, new readings which consider the ANE or the ancient Near East, more than Israel. And I would certainly agree with this. Uh, we talked about this a little bit um, the last uh, two weeks, actually, mostly in uh, when we dealt with the Old Testament. A lot of authors are placing quite a bit of stock in the ancient Near Eastern text in comparison with Israel. And and something that I um, that really concerns me, as we talked about along those lines, is uh, that if those ancient Near East, Near East texts are not true, and the Bible is true, then isn't that a differentiator enough? Um, should we not consider that when we're uh, trying to figure out what might be the true origin of the world, I mean, if we're looking at our documents and we believe that they tell the truth and the other documents don't tell the truth, then there is automatically going to be something different about ours. And since Jesus Christ himself affirmed ours by the admission, by the way, of this the uh, theistic evolutionist that I mentioned in the outset, um... If Jesus affirmed this, then why do we have a hard time believing it? Can we not trust God's Word, Jesus' Word, over what other ancient Near Eastern cultures believed? I think we can, because remember, the focus here was Israel. And of course, um, in from God's view, I mean, the sovereign God of the world, I mean, he knew how things were going to end up. He knew that I was going to be sitting here talking this morning, okay, from before the world began. So The issue I take here is that there is enough difference between the biblical worldview and the ancient Near East that we should not be considering them on the same playing field. Something else the author mentions that might have contributed to this new understanding would be um, new methods of interpreting um, scripture. All right. And uh, so there's two that he mentions, um, and I'll admit I'm not the most familiar with this, um, but it certainly seems to make sense as you as you look at how others have begun to view the old and New Testaments, um, especially the Old Testament, you can kind of see these two views coming out. There are um, there is what is called the Copenhagen method, the Copenhagen method, and this method seems to, place an archaeological bias on the text. So, in other words, wherever we're interpreting Scripture, if archaeology disagrees, then we bias on the side of archaeology. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, and I'll try to link you to it. There's a video out there called Patterns of Evidence, um, the Exodus, all right? Um, and I forget the guy's name. It's Tim something, all right? But Patterns of Evidence, and it's a really, really good video. Um, and it's not perfect, but essentially what they argue in there, just the crux of the argument, is that... Um, the the archaeologists are dating things wrong, and therefore have not been able to find evidence for the um, for the Exodus. And of course, that movie argues the Exodus, but there's um, some other things that are in the mix too. Back in that day, where if you just shift the timeline a couple hundred years, all of the biblical data makes sense. Now. You know, getting them to adjust their ancient chronologies is not an easy task. Um, it, it hasn't happened to date. Um, but archaeologists claim there is no evidence for the Exodus. But if you just move the whole timeline, a couple hundred years, all of the evidence lines up. It's an incredible watch. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, so I will link you to that. So um, you can at least start doing some research on that. I'm sure some people have written some blog posts and things like that along the lines. So... I'll get that to you. All right, now the other um, new method is the Annals method, the Annals method, and this deals with a social science bias, so uh, dealing with the cultures of the day and such like that and uh, coming to a conclusion about the text based on what other, um, other cultures and what that culture is. Um, Believed, all right. So those are a couple new methods that really could um, be contributing factors to this new understanding of, of the text, and um, there are problems. I mean, there are there are really really big problems uh, with understanding things from those lenses. Um, for instance, nowhere, all right, nowhere does the Old Testament or New Testament cast doubt on a historical Adam. Now, we talked about that a little bit already, and it's a very important point. Um, Jesus, uh, Paul, other Old Testament and New Testament writers, wherever they comment on Adam, there is pretty much zero ambiguity into the fact of his being a historical character. Um, We even saw cases where uh, Paul so carefully articulated the words that he used, such to create zero ambiguity in the text between the relation of Adam being the first man and that first man leading to the need for the second Adam, which was Christ. So not only do we see that none of these passages cast doubt um, on a historical Adam, but they actually, in most cases, go out of their way to make sure that we are understanding things in the context of a historical Adam. Now his historicity is affirmed in many places, specifically in the context of the fall. And if you want to write all these down, uh, you can. But this is Genesis um, through the end of the Bible. This is a good little referencing uh, listing of um, the places where he is mentioned in historical context of the fall. Genesis two twenty, First Chronicles one one, Hosea six seven, Luke three thirty eight. Romans 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, excuse me, 15, uh, 22 and 45, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, and Jude 14. So take a look at those places, and you have a historical relation between Adam and the fall of man, between Adam and our sin. It's an it's an unmistakable correlation. And uh, I just found it really interesting to run into somebody the other day who acknowledged that that correlation was indeed there, but just that it was wrong. And, you know, maybe I just haven't interfaced with the theistic evolutionist writings as much as I need to. Um, and you can bet after the other day, I'm, I'm definitely going to start doing that a little more so that I can even better articulate the position um, that they take and how we can answer it and respond to it um, in a gracious but firm matter on this because this is this is not child's play that we're talking about here. This is very serious stuff that if believed um, wholeheartedly in a couple generations could have a serious, serious effect, um, even worse than it is now on the state of uh, of, of evangelical um, classical Christianity, okay? Logical skepticism of the subsequent narratives um, is a interesting problem, all right, with the quasi-historical view of, of Adam. So, here's a question, you know, what is to be made of the flood narrative, Genesis 6-8, through 8, that of the assumption to uh, Enoch uh, to heaven, right, which would be Genesis 5, 21-24, um, of the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, one through 9, uh, much like earlier when we asked, you know, at what point and on what basis do we accept the resurrection, a virgin birth, how much of Genesis do we have to throw out if Adam is not historical? Because the genealogies, again, are linking him right up. I mean, um, we basically have to throw everything out up to Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11, that's what, that's what they do, um, whenever we whenever we have to go this far, and we're just having to throw away so much of the Bible that there is good scientific confirmation for um, in this day. It just doesn't make any sense. And of course, even the uh, translation of Enoch to heaven, there is good, um, even New Testament reference to that. Uh, and the story of the Tower of Babel is so important to our understanding of cultures and languages, um, the, the spreading out of, of where they are now. Um, if we have to throw that out, then we have to... Come up with uh, some some major other explanatory hurdles. Now, of course, that's where evolutionists would go ahead and insert um, the out of Africa model and, and things such as that. Um, but again, there's there's big problems there. C- can anything at all in Genesis be taken at face value? That's that's the question before us. Now. There's no logical reason, now hear this, there's no logical reason uh, to accept a textual difference between Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12. All right, when we are supposedly on, and I quote, the solid ground of historical reality attestable from Sumerian, Akkadian, and Egyptian written documentation, and where, quote, the supernatural has given way to the natural and the miraculous to the scientifically credible. Right? now, now here's what the author comments on that. The pesky problem of miracles in the Old Testament by the score as late as the time of Daniel, circa 530 BC, followed by an explosion of the supernatural throughout the New Testament era, keeps plaguing the secularist, whose credibility loses ground with every miracle explained away. Now that's really interesting. Uh, because uh, the the miracles that happened in the New Testament, um, I was just reading through the Book of John, and I have the Henry Morris Study Bible, which I highly recommend. By the way, it's a very very good study Bible. I don't agree with everything. All right, that Dr. Morris um, uh, has out there. Of course, there's been a lot of new science uh, scientific discoveries since he wrote that Bible. Okay. Uh, But uh, for the most part, I I really think he gets it right. And I agree with his theology on the most part as well. So it's a good read. I certainly appreciate it. And in John, in the book of John, he notes that there are seven miracles of creation. That's what he calls them. And by that, he's noting that Jesus in there is not controlling um, or or just changing the values, rather, of of natural processes, speeding things up, slowing things down, etc. He's actually violating the laws of science. And so he um, attests this to, of course, we know that John presents Jesus as the Son of God and presents him as God, really. And so uh, Dr. Morris takes this as the fact that uh, these miracles that Jesus Christ did are a testament to the fact that he is God because they are miracles of what he calls creation. They violate uh, the laws of science. And so, um, we have this pesky problem that if we just get rid of the miracles in the Old Testament, then we got to get rid of the miracles in the New Testament. Well, if we get rid of the miracles in the New Testament, suddenly we're getting rid of a virgin birth. We're getting rid of a resurrection. Um, you know, we got really big problems with this. So there's no textable reason, okay, to, um, and I realize that some think there is, all right? And th- there's arguments on both sides, all right? I'm not ignorant to that. There's arguments on both sides. But, um, to me, and to this writer certainly, who has taught Old Testament for thirty-eight years, um, there's no textual difference between Genesis one through eleven and Genesis twelve. It, it just it's it's one narrative. It's a historical narrative. So, um, so we should be taking it at face value because otherwise we're going to run into some big problems. Now, the author gives what he considers, by the way, criteria for historical narrative. And I think this is pretty important and nice that he included this. And he wrote this in a different volume of his, okay? Um, so here are some qualifying criteria that he gives um, to uh, to um, test whether or not something is historical, right? Historical. So uh, he says that, A, they are usually narrative, all right meaning it's very logical pro- progression from one to the next it, it's telling a story it's unfolding a story it's it's a narrative you know what a narrative is okay um so um a good test of something being historical is that it's a narrative there are there's a case being built there is something that happens in logical progression after uh, something before it okay secondly b. Uh, a person and event centered, all right? They are person and event centered. So uh, if something is historical, it is going to center around a person and around an event, all right? If something is historical, it will also be purposeful and um, intelligent. okay? So there are going to be um, reasons for it. In other words, it's not just floating out there in the sky. Uh, There are going to be reasons for why Um, it is the way that it is. And of course we know, uh, that the fall is directly responsible for the human condition, for the sinful condition that we're in now. So there is a purpose to this narrative being in the Bible. And then D, it's going to be coherent and closely related to that. E, it's going to be self-consistent and non-contradictory. All right, so that means that we're not going to have to, um, explain away, um, difficulties in there as far as, uh, you know, anything of a serious nature. I'm not talking about you know, people say, well, you know, the Genesis 2 creation account contradicts the Genesis 1 creation account. Well, no, it doesn't. Genesis 2, uh, I believe starting with verse 4, just simply zooms in on day 6 of creation. That is not a problem at all. Um, So, I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about the fact that the gospel, based on the fall, based on the historical events that happened in Genesis 1 through 11, is entirely coherent, self-consistent, and non-contradictory. It all works together. In fact, it only becomes not that way when you try to allegorize it. All right. F, it is focused, right? There Again, there's a purpose for it. It's focused in, it's dialed in, it's not abstract. And then finally, G, it's interpretive, not only brute facts, which means that it is a fact of history, yes, but you can go back, you can interpret it, you can use Uh, what you've learned as a basis for something now. And so, um, in other words, uh, the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States has, in a way, led to the fact that uh, we now have a presidency established and President Trump is our president. It's not just brute facts. There is an element to it, all right, that has something to do with history. Now, he comments, The very nature of the Old and New Testament as a meta narrative with a beginning, progression, climax, denouement, And conclusion presupposes either that everything in it is historically reliable, or nothing in it can make that claim with confidence. I feel like I should read that again. All right, I'm going to read it slowly. I want you to understand that the very nature of the Old and New Testament as a meta narrative with a beginning, progression, climax, denouement, and conclusion presupposes either that everything in it is historically reliable or nothing in it can make that claim with confidence that is a significant very significant all right so it basically be, we can either accept it or if we don't accept certain little parts of it then we simply have to throw the baby out with the bathwater is what he is saying based on his experience and his knowledge of the old and new testament truly something that should cause us to think Supporting evidence for the historicity of Adam. We're going to move kind of fast through this um, because we're closing in on time here. All right, supporting evidence for the history of Adam. Um, What about in literary exegetical text? All right, the Hebrew term Adam, apart from its meaning man or mankind and the like, occurs 12 times in the Hebrew Bible. I'm not building an argument on this. This is just informational, and he lists out the verses there, and I won't take time to read you with all of those, all right? Um, But the Greek equivalent of it, Adam, occurs nine times in the New Testament, all right? So, 12 times in the Old, nine times in the New. Um, Of the 21 occurrences in the Bible, eight of them are in genealogies, eight of them are in commentary or theologizing passages, and the remaining five in Narrative. All right, so we have genealogical data, um, um, theological data, and uh, historical narrative data where Adam appears um, in his actual name. All right, we're not talking about man and mankind. We're talking about an actual Adam. So that's important. Um, In a theological text, uh, quote, just a single passage in Genesis um, theologizes Adam's behavior, one that is embedded in narrative, namely Genesis 3. 1 through 24. Likewise, only a single passage elsewhere in the Old Testament refers to Adam theologically, the disputatious in Hosea 6, 7 through 21. All right, so um, that is Adam in the theological texts in the Old Testament. All right, now as far as the narratives go regarding their historicity, he gives a few facts here um, and he lists them out um, for us. And so we're going to. Look at those real quick before moving on to the Old Testament genealogies, all right? So concerning the Old Testament narratives, number one, Adam's stories, prima facie, all right, meaning at face value, essentially, read as much like historical narrative as any other Old Testament or New Testament texts of the same genre. So the skeptic bears the burden of proof. That's important. It, it reads the same. As any other Old Testament or New, Ter- uh, New Testament narrative text. So if it's different, then the skeptic bears the burden of proof on proving that that is different biblically. You cannot use science to disprove the historicity of the Bible. We need to look at that and say, biblically, um, what is going on here? All right, number two, Genesis recounts uncommon occurrences, but at what point do we dismiss them? The author asks uh, specifically, quote, what law of logic or rationality do these episodes violate except the laws that one, present the key to the past, or that, uh, excuse me, one, that the present is the key to the past, and two, that miracles by definition cannot occur. Put another way, the skeptic seems to reason, what I have not seen or heard cannot be believed. Well, that's a pretty um, pessimistic position and view to take of it, I believe, all right? So uh, if we violate those laws, fine, but let's open our minds a little bit, and let's realize that we're talking about the God who created the world, and let's just reason for a moment that the present might not be the key to the past, and that miracles can occur, all right? So let's think in those terms. Quote, if God were to tell how he created the entire cosmos, this is a question, ready? What language of heaven would be adequately perspicuous to enable mankind to understand it. The scriptures were not designed to obfuscate, but to communicate to every generation and to every level of intelligence who God is and what he has done. In other words, do we have to go to the scholar first to understand our Bible? Do we all have to go to seminary and take Greek and Hebrew to understand our Bible? No. No, we don't. And that's because God meant to clearly communicate it. And it's not communicating it in a different way to somebody just because they have a PhD. They might spend more time studying. But the reality is that God has made his truth known to the world. Um, And he was writing to uh, normal, everyday people, both then and now. All right, number four, quote, are the narratives of creation and the existence of a historical Adam any more difficult to believe and understand than the incarnation of God himself through the fragile vessel of a Jewish peasant teenager, an incarnation known to the inspired apostles as second Adam. All right, so again, we're drawing this comparison. Quote, uh, number five, and finally, can the concept of a, quote, last Adam? have meaning at any level apart from the concept of a first Adam, that one known in the Old Testament. So that's interesting. Can, can, I mean, the one that we know from the from the Old Testament, uh, can the concept of the last Adam in Christ have any meaning apart from that one being, uh, from the first Adam being historical? All right. Um, I I believe so. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I believe, I believe that uh, you cannot have any meaning. I believe that it's very important. I believe that in order for Paul to be telling the truth there, there's going to have to be a real element of history involved in which Adam is treated as a literal human being. How about in genealogies? The author says, um, uh, quote, Of late, genealogies have come to be understood as having much more to do with historical narrative than was hitherto thought to be the case. Like chronological texts, they provide a literary and historical framework and sometimes a precise uh, setting in life against which to understand narratives often intertwined with them. Uh, Klaus Westermann puts puts it this way The genealogies are an essential constitutive part of the primeval story and form the framework of everything that is narrated in Genesis one through eleven. Now the author sets the stage here. He says uh, there are two types of genealogies, two forms. You have uh, the linear genealogies. All right, these trace lineage um, usually through the oldest son, and then you've also got these segmented genealogies, and these are more like branches, um, establishing descent uh, through brother. Uh, excuse me, establishing descent rather through brothers, um, producing parallel lines until one or more segmentation occurs, or to the end of the listing with linear forms in each of the branches, all right? So those are the two forms of genealogies that we see in the Old uh, Testament and in the New Testament as well. So let's look at a couple Old Testament genealogies, Uh, and I'm just going to give you—he lists many observations from each one of these. Um, In the interest of time, I'm just going to give you— Just a few of these, and we are going to list the most relevant observation from each, all right? So, um, genealogy number one, the written account of Adam from the time of his creation. This is found in Genesis 5, 1 through 32. The most relevant observation is this. The elaborate description of Adam as the eponym of mankind and as male and female is clearly intended to underscore his historicity as the father of the human race, verses 1 through 2. His immediate offspring is in his likeness. Uh, the Hebrew word Bidmudo, and according to his image, which is Kitsalmo. You can cross-reference that with uh, one twenty-seven, chapter 1, verse 27. That is, like Adam, and therefore with Adam's privileges and responsibilities, one presumes that all of the following descendants inherit that trait, including those whose actuality is questioned genealogy 2. These are the accounts of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is found in Genesis 10.1. The most relevant observation is this. Adam is not mentioned directly here, but the mandate given to Noah is precisely the one given to Adam, thus cementing their historical and theological relationship. Uh, that's Genesis 9.1 cross-referenced with Genesis 1.28. Genealogy 3, these are the accounts of Shem, alright, this is found in Genesis 11, 10-32. through 32. The most relevant observation is, the genealogy of Shem, related here, differs from that of Genesis, and that it, number one, provides the ages of the patriarchs, and two, it is in a strictly linear form. This is because the line of salvific history is increasingly narrowing from Adam to Noah to Abraham. That's an important thought, and genealogy four, the genealogy of First Chronicles uh, one through twenty. Yeah, First Chronicles one verses one through twenty-seven and thirty-four, and then chapter two verses one through fifteen. And the most relevant observation here is that the genealogy begins with a mere listing of the pre-Noah patriarchs, commencing, of course, with Adam, verses 1 through 4. Clearly, the historian, writing circa 400 BC, is familiar with the Genesis renditions and therefore needs not provide details for the earliest era. All right. How about in the New Testament genealogies, uh, the genealogy of Matthew one, one through seventeen. Uh, the author states that there's not much relevance here, and that, that's you know that is the case. Uh, its purpose was essentially to trace the ancestry of Jesus back through David, through uh, back to David through his father Joseph. All right. Um, and the genealogy uh, number six uh, is the genealogy of Luke. That's in Luke three. 23 and 38, and I quote here, scholars have long noted that Luke's genealogical structure is anomalous and that it begins with the latest generation and works backward to the first. He concludes, in terms of substance, Luke's presentation is virtually identical to those in genealogies 2 and 3. All right, so that's the genealogical data, which is just some, some brief observations. He writes quite a bit about that. Of course, we didn't have the space to discuss all of that here. Uh, there are, uh, there's much I have. We're, we're just about, we're just about up for time. Uh, there are some other interesting things that I do have down here um, that we should probably talk about. Uh, a lot of the New Testament um, exegesis and theology, he he mentions, of course he says that the New Testament case is made almost exclusively by Paul. Um, quote, he must explain the origins, origin of sin and the fall, and what God has done through Christ to make all things new and Right. Now, we argued the evidence last week, um, again for Paul's, um, you know, idea of the connection between Adam and Christ, and we've even talked about it a little bit already here. I just want to give you his major conclusions, okay? Quote, The major conclusions to be drawn from these data are that, one, Adam and pronouns referring to him are significant cross-testament evidences of his existence and role in the matter of original sin, and, two, implicit references to Adam as one man in conjunction with the same descriptor as of Jesus Christ seven times in Romans 5 and twice in First Corinthians 15, Puts beyond any reasonable doubt that the inspired apostle considered Adam to be as historical a figure as Jesus Christ himself. Surely the burden of proof lies with one who supposes that an imaginary or mythical Adam is a fit counterpart to the historical Jesus. As was, so is, should be good enough. So we want to take just a moment before ending up here and uh, take a look at what the author calls uh, the converging lines of evidence for a historical Adam. And he summarizes three separate areas. um, And of course, this chapter, or this particular section rather, does take a bit more time uh, than I'm going to be able to spend on it, uh, laying this out in the book. Uh, But he he looks at the converging lines of evidence. He looks at the nature of the Bible, the literary uh, genres and categories, and then historicity and biblical theology. And he looks at those three areas together and kind of builds a case for a historical Adam uh, using those three converging lines of evidence. And so here's what we find uh, very quickly. The nature of the Bible says prior to the Enlightenment, there was a, uh, quote, near universal consensus regarded, uh, which regarded the Bible as the very word of God, inspired, revealed, inerrant, And authoritative. And I would argue that that is the position that we all ought to hold today, even though we don't. Uh, He continues by the mid 19th century, the Bible had become subjected to the historical critical method, which, among other things, denied its historical and scientific veracity and, as a logical corollary, its authority as the Word of God, written and regulative of faith and life. The evangelical response to this, he says, waged valiantly over many years by godly scholars, oftentimes at the expense of ridicule and disbarment from the academic establishment, now finds itself engaged in intramural disagreement as to the very nature of the Old Testament and its accounts of the past and an assessment as to the reliability of those accounts. So you see here what has happened is the nature of the Bible. It was once regarded as uh, inspired, inerrant, not to be questioned insofar as that we were going to try to read uh, new ideas, new scientific ideas, new outside ideas into the word of God. It was not that way prior to the enlightenment. We got all of our knowledge from the word of God first in the majority, in the majority of times. All right. And then he moves on to literary genres and genres and categories. And, um, And here, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read his uh, summarizing of this area. Uh, The dispute concerning the historicity of the Old Testament Adam tends to lean heavily upon genre questions if the accounts about Adam are not intended to be historical in nature, but rather allegories, parables... Uh, tales, legends, or even myths created to account for present realities like sin and death, then efforts to defend them as historical are doomed to fail and are nothing but colossal wastes of time. If, however, the narratives are to be uh, intentional historical narratives of actual persons and events, those who read them otherwise stand in grave danger of undermining the very basis of the Christian faith." And as recent creationists, uh, may I say real quick that that is why we argue on the basis which we do. Because we understand that these positions which take away a historical Adam greatly undermine the foundation and the need for a Savior. Historicity and, and biblical theology... The author says, sound theology cannot be derived from or erected upon the shifting sands of historical relativism that permits one to cherry pick this or that nugget from the Old Testament, arbitrarily declare it to be either historically credible or not, and then integrate into a biblical theology of his own making. And that is what so many have done today, and that effort will end up fruitless, fruitless for the kingdom of God. Uh, An argument might be made that by making room for a a greater scientific interpretation, we might see more come to the gospel. But which gospel? Is it the same gospel that the Bible teaches? If we're not basing it on a historical Adam, then I, I just don't believe that it's the same gospel. I don't believe that it's the gospel that Jesus preached I don't believe it's the gospel that Paul preached and Peter preached. I, I just don't, uh, I don't see it there. And so it's troubling to me when we try to take these things out and say, well, we just don't need them. Well, the Bible includes them in, in a very historical manner, and so I believe that we actually do need them. Uh, Graham A. Cole said, History, what happened? is vital for any systematic theology that has a high view of Scripture's value. So, when when we're considering these things, we need to understand that the historicity of these events, the actual history which undergirds these events, is very important to taking the whole of Scripture at the value which it claims to be taken, which it claims the need to be taken. And so that is going to be very important for us going forward. Well, in conclusion, in conclusion of this week, and we've kind of seen uh, a few very helpful and important things. Some of the things that we saw this week were um, just summarizations of the data from the past couple weeks that we've looked at, but from the eyes and perspective of a different author. And so that is always helpful. Um, In conclusion, the author says, Much like Adam was lost in the garden when God said, Where art thou? Adam has been lost again, but not by his having made a fatal choice. He has become lost as a historical figure to the minds of modern critics and by their choice. Wooed as they have been by the alluring spell of academic recognition and postmodern humanism, many have dismissed him from their presence as outmoded and as an outmoded and unnecessary relic of a former time when historical reality and biblical theology were thought to be joined at the hip. Codependent, as it were, at least in the thinking of intellectually shallow fundamentalists. And the author here, uh, in closing, uh, briefly lists three attempts at self-justification by the scholarship addressed here. So, the nature of history, the meaningfulness of history to theology, and new hermeneutical advances. He concludes by saying, however, the implicit affirmation that one can have his cake of theological truth, conviction, and power, and at the same time relish the crumbs of a fractured historicism as, though both were baked by the same heavenly baker, have no good thing to offer the Church of Jesus Christ. If the atom of history is irrecoverably lost— the truth of a biblical theology founded on the eschatological Christ, the last Adam, must ultimately perish. Harsh words, but true words. I believe, and I believe our our writer here is really on to something. You know, we've lost Adam, and some of us are working hard <laughs> to find him again, to bring him back, and we know where he's hiding at. Uh, he's hiding underneath of the. Um, of the academic underpinnings that we find. And I'm not against academia. I'm not against scholarship. Uh, all of the authors that we'll quote in this series um, are, are fine men of scholarship. And they have uh, most certainly paid their dues, both education-wise and in, in teaching as well. Uh, they're also very smart individuals. I have no problem with those things inherently. But we must be careful not to... Let some of these things trump our childlike faith in God. And I don't mean to say that we accept the things of God on blind faith and then make a separate compartment for our academic understanding. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is we need a filter, a worldview that is already concrete through which we filter our academic understanding. And the Bible is just so clear and written for the common everyday man that we do not need a Bible scholar to help us understand its pages. That mixed with the truth and leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to be able to confidently rest in a sound historical biblical theology uh, without any concerns of where we might lose the Bible's historical underpinnings along the way. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the Creation Academy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the wonderful Christmas that you've given us. Lord, we want to thank you for sending your Son to come down to this earth and to take on the form of of a man. We realize, Lord, that you love us and that you would have never done that, Lord, if you didn't. And, Lord, I pray now that as we attempt to teach your truth, teach your gospel, Lord, that in our um, attempts to do so, we would not take for granted the history that you've given us in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do this study. May it open minds and open hearts to once again accepting the historical reality of Adam, Eve, the fall, and major parts of the Old Testament, Lord, which are a crucial part to the story of humanity and the story of the world. Thank you, Father, again for the wonderful blessings this year, and we're looking forward with anticipation to 2018. God, I pray that you would just help it to be the best year ever for us, for our ministry, and help us to be excited about it with a renewed passion, zeal, and vigor. And I pray, Lord, that most of all, we would see many souls saved and hearts and lives changed along the way. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this week, and I just uh, hope and pray that you had a great Christmas, and we will look forward to seeing you next week right here on the Creation Academy. Thanks. Bye-bye.